Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our summer reading series this year because, as we told you last time, we ended up talking about our favorite books from this year. And then we ended up just going for, how long did we talk? Like 17 hours? It it went on a while. Yeah, because we were talking about the books, but we're also talking about a lot of the ideas wrapped up in them. And in doing so, discussing some of the predominant themes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind over the past year. Yeah. Uh, So we decided we had to split it in two. Here we are with part two. I think last time we talked about nonfiction. This time we're probably going to be talking about fiction. All right, let's jump right back into the conversation. Okay, Robert, I think you had a couple of fiction books you wanted to talk about, right? Yeah, and again, these are both books that you may have heard me discuss at least in passing before, um, because again, I, I can't, if I really like a, a work of fiction, it's going to boil out in mm-hmm. everything that I do and, and until people are sick of hearing about it. Uh, and so the first book I want to talk about is Starfish by Peter Watts. Oh. Uh, this is from 1999. So my fiction pick last summer, I think, was Blind Sight by it Peter was. Watts. Yeah. yeah. That was a, a book from 2006, mm-hmm. and and I read that one as well uh, because you were talking about it, and uh, I, I think when you told me it had space vampires in it, I mm-hmm. was like, well, I, I have to read this now. It's definitely got the best sci-fi vampires of anything I've read. Oh, yeah, without a, without a doubt. So Peter Watts, is a, he's a Canadian sci-fi author and former marine mammal biologist. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we've certainly talked about him on the show uh, before, and we've talked about Starfish as well, uh, uh, referenced it in a few of our underwater episodes earlier this year. Mm-hmm. This is actually his first novel, uh, and uh, and I'd never read it before. Uh, I've, I've been working on an underwater sci-fi podcast for How Stuff Works, and then I realized that Watts had written something more or less in the genre already. Did so, I send it to you? I thought maybe I did. I think may, maybe you did, yeah. yeah. And I, so when I realized that it was that it was an underwater sci-fi tale, I was like, "Well, I've got to I've got to jump in and see what what Watts did with it." Uh, so it it is a a a, a just a very um, addictive novel. Yeah. Um, so it it just to give a quick uh, plot overview, we basically you have a crew of psychologically damaged people who undergo cybernetic enhancement so that they can work on deep-sea geothermal plants in the near future. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, they're, and they're doing this work, very dangerous work, uh, uh, among um, some mysteriously gigantic deep-sea organisms uh, near dangerous uh, hydrothermal vents. And they're also dealing with the uncertainty of their own psychology and an emergent biological threat that everyone is totally uh, unequipped to handle. Mm. And this thing is loaded with science. Like Watts is an author who just he really uh, he really packs a lot of <laughs> of scientific ideas. Sometimes it's more you know scientific hypotheses, mm-hmm. uh, but he packs a lot in. So this particular book, for instance, is loaded with deep water biology, spreading zone uh, tectonics and geology, quantum theories of consciousness, AI, molecular evolution, dream learning, neuroplasticity, as well as abuse and addiction psychology. Now, I wonder something about it because I haven't read this yet. Mm-hmm. I, I became aware of it uh, a while back and I've, I've been wanting to read it but haven't gotten to it yet. So my question is, are there characters that can be loved? <laughs> because Blindsight, it was my fiction pick last year because of exactly what you're talking about. It's just packed with thought-provoking ideas and unique bits of world building. Um, one of the most interesting books I've ever read, so much so that I almost had to like keep – constantly putting it down to like write down thoughts I was having about the stuff in the book. Mm-hmm. 
But it was also a difficult book for several reasons, one of the main ones being that like the main character in in Blindside is extremely unsympathetic. I mean that's by design since his character – he's a character who essentially has no empathy due to an experimental brain surgery. Now, this actually played a role in the plot and made for a very interesting narrator but not a very sympathetic or lovable one. So does Watts throw us more of a bone in this story as, as far as like characters you can fall in love with? Well – I would say yes and no because on one level you do see that that same trend of of a lot of characters that are damaged or less human perhaps in different ways either due to something that has been done to them or something that they have voluntarily um, done through te- technological uh, enhancement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say that the protagonist, uh, Lenny Clark – she you do root for her perhaps more than some of the characters in blind side like yeah. she's she's a, a very damaged individual with uh, the, and she's essentially transhuman at this point mm-hmm. due to cybernetic enhancements and some other stuff uh but in starfish you are rooting for her. there she is kind of an underdog and, yeah. and i think that is one of the things that that pulled me in with starfish probably uh more than blind side is that i i i wanted I wanted her to succeed or to survive at the very least. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to read a quick uh, a passage uh, from the book here, just to give everyone a, a taste of some of the um, uh, some of the the, the biological uh, science that is invoked in it. Yeah, let's hear it. And in this, we uh, we're, we're following Lenny Clark as she is out swimming in the, the deep dark ocean. Quote, everywhere else, living constellations punctuate the dark. Here, a string of pearls blink sexual advertisements at two-second intervals. Here, a sudden flash leaves diversionary afterimages swarming across Clark's field of view. Something flees under cover of her momentary blindness. There, a counterfeit worm twists lazily in the current, invisibly tied to the roof of some predatory mouth. There are so many of them. She feels a sudden surge in the water as if something big is just passed very close. A delicious thrill dances through her body. It nearly touched me, she thinks. I wonder what it was. The rift is full of monsters who don't know when to quit. It doesn't matter how much they eat. Their voracity is as much a part of them as their elastic bellies, their unhinging jaws. Ravenous dwarves attack giants twice their own size and sometimes win. The abyss is a desert. No one can afford the luxury of waiting for better odds. But even a desert has oasis, and sometimes the deep hunters find them. They come upon the malnourishing abundance of the rift and gorge themselves. Their descendants grow huge and bloated over such delicate bones." My light was off, and it left me alone. I wonder. She turns it back on. Her vision clouds in the sudden glare, then clears. The ocean reverts to unrevealed black. No nightmares accost her. The beam lights empty water wherever she points it. She switches it off. There's a moment of absolute darkness while her eye caps adjust to the reduced light. Then the stars come out again. They are so beautiful. Lenny Clark rests on the bottom of the ocean and watches the abyss sparkle around her. And she almost laughs as she realizes 3,000 meters from the nearest sunlight that is only dark when the lights are on. That's great, man. Well, you know what? It reminds me of Blindside. It reminds me of sort of the richness of like uh, the the sci-fi horror atmosphere that, that Watts can create. Yeah. Um, his, his worlds are so rich. 
Yeah, and this book really, I mean, you can you get a taste of it here. Like he is an author that clearly uh, was slash is in love with the biology of the deep ocean. Yeah, uh, and even though this is a slightly, you know, there's, there's some sci-fi elements uh, uh, invoked here. Uh, it is a it resonates with a a love for the, the the natural wonders of the deep. Robert, I know you were a fan of the uh, recent game Soma, which you recommended to me. Do you think that maybe Starfish was an influence on Soma? I bet it was. Um, again, I didn't I didn't even know Starfish existed until uh, uh, you know earlier this year, uh, really, but. Uh, but uh, afterwards, I started looking into it. And I, I read somewhere that the the makers of the the Bioshock games were also inspired by by Starfish. So, oh, that would make sense. So I think it has been highly influ- influential. In I mean, if, I, I I can't imagine making some sort of underwater sci-fi horror at this point without, of course, being familiar with the Abyss, uh, mm. the James Cameron <laughs> right. film, and Deep Star Six. Yeah, Deep Star Six, Leviathan. Yeah, and at least finding out about Starfish and and realizing that it is uh, an important work to 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 read and reference. All right, if somebody were to make a Starfish movie, what director should it be? Ooh, I don't know. you, you got to have – who's the most uh, nihilistic uh, director out there right now? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe – I guess does Nolan count? He's, he has some nihilistic – Christopher team. Nolan? Yeah, yeah, think I'm, he's nihilistic? Well, no, but he, there's a there – a, yeah, He's borderline sentimental sometimes. Okay, he's – it, but in terms of, I guess I'm thinking about the visual universe he tends to create. I feel like his his visual world is nihilistic, even if okay. even if there's hope everywhere else. A lot of slate grays and stuff yeah, like that. I don't know. So for some reason, he comes to mind. Um, and also, his it's it's so humorless. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I tend to find that Nolan's uh, movies are they they are not very fun. Usually, I find that they are. I find they are not fun, and they are not certainly not funny. They are satisfying. They are they are they are beautiful. They are they are they are excellent films. Uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but you don't enjoy them. <laughs> no, I well, I enjoy them, but I don't enjoy them in the same way I enjoy other things. Uh-huh. I don't know. For some reason, I'm thinking. I think Christopher Nolan might be the might be might might be the uh, director to to helm something like this. Okay, it's time to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more summer reading. All right, we're back. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and hit my uh, my, my final fiction uh, selection for this year's summer reading. Okay, and this is one again that uh, that if you have been listening uh, religiously to the the show, or and certainly if you if you read it, take pay attention to our social media, you've probably uh, heard or seen me mention it before. But it is a 2009 novel by Terrence Hawkins titled "The Rage of Achilles." Oh yeah. So, Tell me about it. Okay. Well, uh, Terrence Hawkins, uh, he's the author of two books and various short stories. Uh, he was founding director of the Yale Writers Conference, and he now runs the Company of Writers, which offers workshop and manuscript service to writers uh, at all levels of experience. And incidentally, he also chimes in from time to time on our Facebook group, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module, oh, yeah. with, uh, with you know, commentary and literary recommendations. But The Rage of Achilles, this, this is a novel, and it's essentially a novelization of Homer's The Iliad retold with modern language and invoking Julian Jaynes, uh, the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Oh, okay. So if you'll recall from our bicameral mind episodes, the Iliad was one of the pieces of evidence in literature from the ancient world that Jaynes uses to show uh, – basically, he uses it to argue that people at this time, first of all, two main premises, were not conscious – 
and did not have an inner mind space. And number two, they had novel activities directed by hallucinations that they believed to be the voices of gods. And so he, he basically he determines that this is the case uh, for the people who produce the Iliad because he looks at the Iliad and he says there's very little consciousness in the Iliad. You don't get people reflecting internal mind states. Instead, when people do things, it says a god made them do it. Yes. And I, and I, I want to be clear here. I don't want to make it sound as if Hawkins wrote a, a novel that serves as a teaching tool for the bicameral mind hypothesis. No. <laughs> uh, rather, uh, Hawkins uses um, uses the bicameral mind as a means of understanding a lot of the decision-making and divine inspiration that takes place in the story of the Iliad. Uh, and it's and also to be clear, it's not an epic retelling of the Trojan War. It is uh, just the Iliad itself, mm-hmm. which only occupies a portion of the, the Trojan War. Okay. So this is definitely a book for mature readers. Uh, Hawkins doesn't shy away from the violence, slavery, misogyny, and, and sexual violence uh, inherent in the in the culture at the time. It's not. Uh, it's not an ancient Greeks were great book. No, no. Uh, it, and, and and all of it is also revealed again through very modern language. The characters speak to each other like they are modern humans, even mm-hmm. if they, in many of the cases, do not have modern minds. Uh, because especially through the eyes of Odysseus, the reader is is forced to come to terms with the familiar yet alien nature of this kind of ancient world. So the book is grim, it's dark, it's violent, but not in a way that betrays its historical and literary roots. Mm-hmm. So the, the book, uh, I, I found, does a fantastic job of depicting what it might have been like to exist as a bicameral human and what it might have been like to live among them as a more modern human with a awoken a consciousness. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of the characters in The Rage of Achilles are highly susceptible to bicameral hallucinations. Uh, Odysseus uh, is our main window into modern consciousness along with the Trojan prince Paris. And uh, when faced with pressing challenges or cognitive dissonance, the gods speak to these uh, these people, to the bicameral characters, and even manifest visually. So in keeping with Jane's theory, these, these hallucinations are produced by the, of course, the, the non-dominant hemisphere and perceived by the dominant voices within the mind uh, wrapped within the trappings of an outer pantheon. Mm-hmm. And the hallucinations range from helpful to chaotic. For instance, the Achaean king, uh, Agamemnon, experiences his desire to claim Achilles' slave, uh, Bresius, as a divine command. And this endangers the entire siege. But, it also, uh, but he also uh, rallies his men uh, when Zeus speaks through him. Mm-hmm. And then we have Achilles himself, uh, who, who turns to bicameral visions of his mother for guidance, uh, his mother, of course, the mythical Thetis. And, and yet the very act of locking eyes with a horse on the battlefield threatens to uh, transform into a chaotic hallucination for Achilles. Mm-hmm. Hawkins is a, is, a, is a great writer, and he has uh, there's so many passages in this book that really capture this uh, you know, far better than, than I can summarize. Uh, for instance, there's a part where Agamemnon speaking to Odysseus after Odysseus is, uh, has presented some ideas. And he says, do you ever have any thoughts of your own or is it always gray-eyed Athena um, um, talking in there? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the the idea that like any kind of inspiration, any kind of like, I guess you would say sort of, um, you know, major moments in, in cognition, they are not your own. They must be the gods speaking through you. And indeed, those with a bicameral mind would be would be perceiving it as such. 
It's a wonderful exploration of the concept, and I love the idea of novels based on the idea of the bicameral mind because that that satisfies both of my impulses. On one hand, I don't believe it's a correct interpretation of history. I don't believe it's a correct explanation of what consciousness is or what past human consciousness was like. On the other hand, I think it's such an interesting idea to explore. And so fiction seems like a perfect realm for it. Like you don't necessarily have to believe it was ever true, but you could explore it as a sort of alternative reality. Yeah, I would love to read more books that uh, that, that use the bicameral mind as a way of of making sense of uh, of the magical and the divine. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's, here's another wonderful uh, passage from the book. No one will speak to Achilles. No one in his right mind would. All day he has sat at the foot of Patroclus's unlit pyre. The only company he will tolerate is that of the priests who flank it, droning away in the language that the Achaeans spoke when their minds first awakened in the north when the ice rivers were still fresh memories to their grandfathers, whose own grandfathers had been no more than puppets in the hands of the gods, hunting and breeding with no more consciousness of purpose than the animals they slaughtered. So again, this captures a a, a time when the bicameral mind would be giving way to the modern mind. And you would be in this this chaotic uh, uh, realm between where you you have more and more modern thought but then you have these bicameral visions and these bicameral experiences and then a few few people such as Odysseus in this novel who do not know what it is to have a bicameral vision mm-hmm. and just exist outside of it and just have to nod along when everyone else is talking about what the gods told them today. Yeah, I've got to give this one a read. I recommend it. Uh, now, uh, there is another book uh, by Terrence Hawkins I want to mention briefly, and it's uh, titled American Neolithic. came out in 2014. It's a near-future dystopian novel in which a tribe of Neanderthals have survived into the modern world. And it features some really thought-provoking depictions of how this might work, how Neanderthal biology and cognition uh, might, would differ from ours, and how their uh, er- eradication factors into human culture. Uh, so I, I have to read uh, uh, one, one of my favorite passages from this. And this is uh, told by uh, the, the, the protagonist who is a Neanderthal who has survived into modern times. Quote, you for whom we have always been the other, our existence buried deep in your racial memories since the time when glaciers girdled the world and the contest between man and animal was yet to be decided. We haunt your legends as we haunt your dreams, misshapen versions of yourself, bad copies, formerly kobolds or gremlins, now morlocks and orcs. Oh, that's creepy. So yeah. the idea that we, we've got all these humanoid monsters in our fiction and that this is coming from deep instincts we have about uh, about other types of human-shaped creatures, that very close relatives of ours that existed, you know, a few – as recently as several thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah. There was a, there was another. There was this this slightly inhuman other that we uh, that we wiped from the earth and we keep recreating them and uh, – in, in all of these fantastic forms. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, poetic uh, idea. I like it. Though I, I also like the idea that it implies like homo sapiens, like us, we were maybe the bad guys actually. Like yeah. we demonized them, but we do so unfairly. Like we were really the aggressive mean ones that wiped them out. Yeah. Uh, now this is a, an idea that is explored in a book that, uh, that we haven't read yet, but we've both discussed reading. Um, mm. Uh, what what is it titled? The the descendants, the inheritors, the inheritors. Yes, by William Golding, the uh, the author of Lord of the Flies. Oh yeah. 
Uh, and I, I've, I've actually read like the first chapter of it and uh, I'm very intrigued to pick it up again later because it is the, the story of Neanderthal annihilation from the point of view of the Neanderthals. Man, humans like us can be scary. We're the worst. All right. Well, it looks like it's time for me to talk about some fiction. Now, Robert, last time you got to pick a classic. You picked Carl Sagan's classic nonfiction work. So I'm going to pick a classic work of fiction that I just read for the first time. Oh, okay. What do you have? This is The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, 1959. It is a gothic horror novel first published in 59 with the most classic of haunted house setups, right? So you got a haunted house. It's got a malevolent ghostly presence reported over the generations. It's got tragic history. And then there's a kind of stuffy professor who's interested in the paranormal. And he hires several psychically sensitive people to come live in the house with them and study the hauntings that occur there. Now, this has been made into a couple of movies and believe Believe it or not, I've actually not seen either one of them. Oh, really? Or there, there are at least two. There might be more. There's one supposedly terrible adaptation from 1999 that I haven't seen with Liam Neeson, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Owen Wilson, directed by the guy who made Speed, Twister, and Speed 2 Cruise Control. Oh, I actually saw this one, but oh, I can't yeah? remember a single thing about it. Except I think there's like a beheading scene or yeah. something. Uh-huh. That's not in the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard it is radically different from the book, but I haven't seen it. I kind of want to watch it. Maybe this weekend it's time for some, some trash ghost movies. Uh, there's also supposedly a movie version from the 60s that is uh, better, but I haven't seen either one. But if you've never read this book and you're in the mood for a good old-fashioned haunted house story, this is a really fabulous read. It's that kind of mid-century New Yorker style of prose writing. So it's thoughtful, uh, really funny, actually, but also reserved. And um, I have to admit, for me at least, genuinely scary. At, at least I thought so. Maybe you'll write in and say, I didn't think it was scary. You know, you're, you're a crybaby. But I thought it was scary. And I'm not alone. Uh, Stephen King wrote an introduction to the book in which he wrote uh, that, uh, quote, it seems to me that The Haunting of Hill House and uh, Henry James's The Turn of the Screw are the only two great novels of the supernatural in the last hundred years. Huh. Interesting. That's a bold pronouncement. It is. Uh, but, you know, I do agree that when a when a ghost story – is done well, uh, it, it it can be so terrifying. Yeah. A ghost story, though, is is like a lot of things in horror, it is typically not done well. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you're right about that. And, and it is genuinely horrifying. And I think it's interesting that it can be genuinely horrifying to people like us who are horror fans and who are largely desensitized to the most piercing aspects of horror. Like, I think I may have contemplated this on the podcast before, but I just want to bring it up again because this is such a perplexing question to me. Why are ghosts the scariest of all monsters? I feel like this must be measurably true because uh, I, I'm, you know, we're both horror fans. I've asked a lot of my friends who are horror fans about this. We've had this conversation a bunch of times. Once you're used to horror books and horror movies – vampires, werewolves, hell beasts, they're great. They're great fun. We love them, but they're not really scary anymore, are they? I mean, do you find yourself really worrying at night in the dark about vampires or anything like that? I I certainly don't. No, the the ghost, I think one of the reasons it can be so so effective is that it's something that really doesn't have to obey the rules. I mean, yes, you can get in, you do have treatments of it that have a lot of rules and mm-hmm. throw in some uh, ghost fighting pseudoscience and some proton packs and you have a, a different <laughs> situation. But the, the, I, f- I feel like the best, the most effective ghost stories are the ones in which the protagonist or the protagonist 
are totally out of their element and do not know how to deal with the threat. I think that's one of the reasons that uh, uh, that the, the at least the initial incarnations of the of the Ring movies, mm. uh, both the the, the original uh, Japanese and the and and I I would also classify the original uh, 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 English language remake. Mm-hmm. They both succeed in presenting a supernatural threat that does not seem to obey. Law. Well, I mean, it obeys certain laws, but but once you've uh, you've awakened it, there's no stopping it. I think I think there's something about that. Yeah, the, the ghost in the ring is terrifying to me in a way. Uh, I mean, less so now that I'm so used to it. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of a joke. Yeah, now, it was, but, that was the other great thing about it is that it felt so fresh at the time. Yes, uh, when I first encountered it, it was truly terrifying to me, and I think. Part of it has to do with its, its non-corporeality, like that it doesn't have a specific body that's bound to a place, you know, that it can kind of appear anywhere. Um, as soon as you give a monster a body, I mean, I love monster designs. All those those beast designs are great. But it immediately becomes a thing that's like, okay, I could run from this. I could fight this. With a ghost, it, it in fact, with ghosts, in most stories, ghosts are not even really a physical threat. They're not going to grab you and bite you and tear you asunder and harm harm your physical body. They, they attack your mind. But as far as I know, here's one aspect of hauntings that's never really explored. And that is that uh, the, the idea that a ghost could lower your rent. <laughs> well, you know that, that that it would uh you know reduce your property taxes or or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Like this seems like prime uh territory for exploitation with with uh, with with haunting fiction. Uh the idea that the, the presence of the ghost would actually make the the haunted location more desirable uh to individuals willing to put up with it. Wait a minute, is this not part of the plot of the frighteners? Is it? I don't know. I've never seen The Frighteners. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time. I'm vaguely recalling something like ah. this, like a buddy. Oh, maybe maybe he's just like uh, the, there's a human character who's got ghost buddies and he uses them for hauntings and then maybe he charges for exorcisms. <laughs> I think maybe that's what it is. But it it struck me in in the moment that – there could be some kind of real estate scam where you like, <laughs> you know, you rent out a property and then you get your ghost buddies to haunt it. And so you can get your rent lowered. Yeah. If only ghosts actually existed and were, uh, you know, verifiable through science. Uh, yeah. So there is, of course, the fact that ghosts don't exist. But there are some great insights about our psychology I think we can gain from thinking about why ghosts are so particularly terrifying. Uh, so one example that I want to talk about briefly, the ebook version of Haunting of Hill House that I have has an introduction by Guillermo del Toro. Ah. And so he writes about the way that the, the horror in the story comes from the way the house itself in the book behaves like a predator in the wild. And he also points out how the novel preys on our ancestral fears of being alone, being separated from the herd. He writes calling it, quote, a fascinating piece of nature documentary. Hill House is the lion pouncing in slow motion on the smallest, weakest gazelle in the herd. And he's talking about a particular character who the house preys on uh, in the book. But then he points out how the book accentuates the terror by driving home that our vulnerability in being alone isn't just present when we're physically alone because we're always alone within our own minds. And the very fact that you can't share your consciousness with other people means that we're always subjectively separated from the herd no matter what, vulnerable to the predations of ghosts. 
Interesting. Yeah, I like this treatment of the of, of the, the ghost, the haunting, the poltergeist as uh, a predatory force because we, we do see this. Uh, I feel like this motif is uh, is is used well in our in some of our best haunting fiction. You know, yeah, that it's not just the the ghost is just trying to you know warn you about the perils of not believing in Christmas or or what have <laughs> you. Like that, it is uh, it is a nasty customer that just wants to hurt you. Though what you say, uh, I mean, just bringing up the ghosts in uh, Christmas Carol, I mean, that does play on another big part of the ghost lore, right? Which is that ghosts are very often on a mission. They're concerned with something in some way. They Mm want to teach you a lesson or get you to do something for them or uh, get you to, you know, avenge some wrong on their behalf or something like that. So many stories end this way. Um, I don't want to spoil anything about the haunting of Hill House, but it's a great kind of reprieve from a lot of the the corny uh, plot wrap ups that you often see in ghost stories. Nice. Well, you know, I've never read it. Uh, it's it's uh, it's been on my list for a very long time. So yeah. maybe this Halloween I'll get yes. around to it. You should read it this October, Robert. Yeah. I would love to see what you think. Uh, uh, you know, speaking of October, uh, I believe it was last October we had a, uh, an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind come out. This was one I did uh, with Christian, uh, where we we took various ghost stories from around the world mm-hmm. and tried to get break them down and figure out like what what do they reveal these individual stories reveal about uh the human condition or uh you know cultural elements uh and it was a pretty fun exercise so uh, uh i feel like it's possible that we could we could we could bring that model back out again this october hmm. and uh, and see what we could find uh, you know maybe i think i think last Last time, uh, most of the ghosts ended up uh, revealing something kind of horrible about colonialism. Um, <laughs> maybe we could find some examples of, uh, of ghost lore that reveal more about human psychology. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the ghost archetype is kind of a master key to the lock on the human mind where you can open it up and rummage around with all the, I don't know, all the images and fears we've got in there. It's sort of like a, a perfect uh, cipher for, for what's deep down in there suppressed. Uh, how about the film Ghost Shark? Does that, <laughs> <laughs> does that exist? It does exist. I haven't oh, seen it yet. But, I got to uh, see it that. It does exist. That's good. Yeah. Now, does it still eat people even though it's a ghost? I don't know. Maybe it eats your ghost. Maybe it has to work with another shark, like real shark eats you, and then ghost shark eats your ghost. That's what I'm hoping for. Maybe I'll also find out about this this Halloween. I don't know how how does a ghost shark attack your mind. It doesn't seem. With teeth. With big <laughs> teeth. Well, that's a good attack. Uh, also, while I'm talking about ghosts and horror, I just wanted to mention another book that uh, is it's not on the list because I haven't finished reading it yet, but I love it so far. Uh, it's a book of horror short stories I've been reading for a while now called After the People Lights Have Gone Off from 2014 by the author Stephen Graham Jones, who's ah, yes. a great horror writer that uh, I've just been getting into recently, and I really enjoy some of the stories in there. Yeah, I'm very excited to check out some of his fiction at some point as well. Um, uh, especially his tales that speak to the Native American experience. Oh, yeah. Some of the stories do deal with uh, those themes. One of my favorites in the collection that I've read so far is a short story called Brush Dogs, which is, uh, I believe, set on the uh, on a Blackfeet reservation in Montana. Oh, cool. And it, it's a great story. It's really haunting. deals, again, with, uh, I don't want to say explicitly with ghosts, but it's got a very ghostly aura about it. All right, well, on that note, we're going to take a break, but then we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Well, this leads us to the the final selection for today's episode, and this one is yours, Joe. All right, my final pick for this year is a fiction book, and it is 
The Three-Body Problem by Sitchin Liu, or uh, I guess actually it would be inverted in the Chinese. It would be Liu Sitchin. Oh, this uh, is a great one. I've read this one as well. Yeah, and so this is – I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce his name perfectly. I know I, my Chinese pronunciation is not great. But uh, so this one was first published in Chinese around 10 years ago, published in an English translation by Ken Liu in 2014. And I saved this one for last because – I, I struggled to decide whether or not to include it specifically for the reason that so much of the pleasure of this novel is the slow, gradual revelation and development of its themes and, and what's going on in the plot. And thus, it's kind of unfortunately one of those books that's just chock full of stuff to talk about. But in talking about it with somebody who hasn't read it, you inevitably kind of spoil or at least undercut a few wonderful surprises about the plot. Uh, so for this entry, I want to talk about what I love about the book generally. Then I'll give a warning before we discuss a few more specific things. So listeners who haven't read the book, plan on reading it, and want it to be a complete surprise to them can hop out if they need to. Uh, but I'm not doing that just yet. So first of all, I want to say that this is my favorite kind of science fiction book in that it's one that deals not just with the future – or with technology, futuristic technology, but with scientific concepts themselves and makes the problems of scientific discovery crucial to the advancement of the plot. So the science is not mere MacGuffin. It's not mere like uh, plot element. It is it, it is part of the, the, the backbone of the, the entire work. Right. In a way, it's about science. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, it, it won't spoil much to say this because it's there in the title. The book deals with themes like predictability, unpredictability, and chaos. And so there's this idea of the three-body problem in physics. That's what's referenced in the title. It's a classic problem that goes something like this. Let's say you have two objects interacting with one another in space and you know Newton's laws of mechanics and you know the starting position of the two objects. You know their velocities and you know their mass. If you know all those things, you can create a robust solution that will predict their behavior and easily predict their positions at any given point in the future. They orbit a center of gravity in a very clear and simple way, and you can create a closed solution that will show you where they'll be at time t. But if you add a third object to the mix, suddenly chaos and unpredictability take over. And the objects are still perfectly governed by the laws of physics. It's not like a ghost went in there and did anything crazy. But, but their interaction suddenly can't be predicted in a concise way. And they'll appear to change orbits and positions sort of crazily as each object repeatedly gets pulled in surprising directions by the other two. If you want to see what this looks like, you can look up the three-body problem or three-body orbit online. And there are lots of videos that simulate it so you can see it. Uh, but just imagine what it would look like if you tried to put three objects orbiting each other in space. I mean, they just go all over the place. And so in keeping with these themes of predictability and unpredictability, it also deals with the ways that we can't predict which of our ideas in science and technology will be most applicable and in what ways. Uh, so the, there, I feel like there's a lot of stuff in this book about people sort of working in the dark and not knowing what they're working towards before realizing how their work becomes crucial. And that's a theme I like a lot. 
Now, I, I have to I have to mention that I, I didn't read it so much as I listened to it. I have mm-hmm. the, the audiobook uh, mm-hmm. version of this, and the audiobook is terrific. Uh, uh, I, I I love a good audiobook presentation, and, and this is uh, certainly one of those. I think you mentioned that the uh, the reader does the detective character in a real gruff way or something. Yeah, it's kind of a kind of a gruff voice like this, you know, kind of like an old like time gruff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and he does. He has some other very interesting uh, voice uh, choices later on as well. Um, I, I was actually listening to the audiobook version, and my wife was reading um, a hard copy of it. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, this is one of those books where if if you were say a hundred pages ahead of someone else, like you were, you have radically different thoughts. Yeah, you have radically different thoughts. It's almost like you're in a different book you uh-huh. know, uh, when you start trying to compare notes on what's happening. Oh man, I loved it. Uh, I loved how you would you'd get into these parts of the book where you're just like, "What is going on? What does this have to do with anything?" Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, there is a crucial virtual reality video game in the book that when when you start getting into these sections of the book, I just remember thinking like, how on earth does this have anything to do with with the broader plot? But then it connects in, a, I think, a, a brilliant way. Uh, yeah, this is like a it's a it's a virtual uh, depiction of an alien world that's threatened by uh, by by, uh, by, these, by these periods of like burning and freezing, right? They're trying to figure out what are the celestial mechanics with multiple suns that are the that are just burning out the world in in a way that directly uh, uh, echoes the the Chinese uh, myth of uh, Hu Yi, the uh, the archer who shoots the surplus suns out of the sky, and a number of other um, uh, mythological and historical figures are also referenced in this virtual world. Yeah, I think there's a legendary Chinese emperor in one of the yes, yes, uh, in one of the simulations. But, but also anyway, some Western figures as well, as I recall. Oh, yeah. I think like, – I don't remember who all they are, but like what, like Einstein and Socrates and Jesus show up or oh, something. Yeah. There's a tremendous sense of unpredictability with this book. I mean, part of it just be due to the originality of the book itself. But I, but I also wonder how much of it is the fact that most of us – probably do not read a lot of Chinese literature or mm-hmm. certainly Chinese science fiction. So, you know, we're we're not as keyed into what some of the trends are. I don't know. I think I'm embarrassed to say this, but I think this might be the first modern Chinese novel I have read. I don't I want to think of another, but I can't. That That is a huge blind spot in my reading. I, I guess I should read more. But, yeah, th- this is the only one I can think of. Yeah, yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I've I've read some older works by by various Chinese writers, but this is this is the only work of contemporary science fiction that comes to mind for sure. And but it's certainly not the only translated uh, Chinese science fiction work out there. There are there are um, a, a number of other ones of note. Oh yeah, of course. Well, so Robert, maybe I think we should transition to a slightly more spoilery discussion. So if if you're planning on reading the book, you don't want anything spoiled. Maybe you should hop out now. Uh, but but before you go, if you are leaving early, let me just remind you that there will be a complete list of all of these books and links to where you can buy them uh, or obtain them or find out more information about them. Uh, they'll all be on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Yeah. Now, if you do want to stick around, we hope you will. Uh, you you don't plan on reading this book or you've already read it or maybe you just don't mind having a few kind of like themes talked about at greater length. I want to talk about some of the ideas explored in this book. 
So first of all, we, we can talk about now that we're, we're over the gap, the fact that this turns out to be a, a, a disastrous first contact novel. Yes. Uh, uh, first contact between an alien civilization and Earth and that it ultimately ends with the alien civilization uh, taking a hostile colonizing position toward planet Earth, looking at us with envious eyes. Yes. And – when I when we've talked about how it's a different book at uh, later on than it is um, uh, in the early goings, it, right. I, I have to point out that you start with what seems like it's going to be a very historically based novel yeah. taking place in the past, but you do reach a point where it's just page after page from the the alien's point of view. Yeah, and if you're listening to the audio book, their voices uh, sound like the Moonanites on uh, <laughs> uh, what's the show, the Adult Swim show, um, um, uh, 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 Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Yes. This is the voice that sort of sounds like this. This is the voice of the aliens. They, it's great. It works. The, the aliens have a calm malevolence that is not mean-spirited mm-hmm. uh, but but is perfectly aggressive and cruel in a way that mirrors one of my favorite lines from a sci-fi horror movie. Did you ever see the, you know, the late 70s invasion of the body snatchers with Donald Sutherland and Leonard oh, I've Nimoy? Never, I've never seen that one. Oh, well, <laughs> n- now I have to spoil something for you. There's, there's just a great line where where one of the characters who's still human is talking to the uh, w- the people who have been turned into aliens and he says something like, we hate you. And one of the aliens says to him, we don't hate you. It's just a brilliantly chilling thing to say. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can definitely see the echo of that in uh, in this work. Uh, but yeah, so so there's there's this attack coming. And a lot of what the book ends up being about is the ways that the aliens have, have sent a sort of uh, information-based advance force to try to cripple Earth's ability to protect itself from the alien invasion before they actually get here. And so that's where, where a lot of the fascinating ideas of the novel come in. Uh, it's about what could an advanced alien civilization do to stop Earth from being able to protect itself before they get to us. And so one of the things that they they come up with is they're like, we got to stop science from happening uh-huh. on Earth uh, because they're afraid it's going to take a long time for them to get to us. And what if while they're in transit, we make a lot of advances in particle physics and stuff and drastically increase our technological capabilities? Yeah, I mean, it is the absolute best thing that we have as a culture. Like it is the thing that has produced the modern world and it is the thing with the with with uh, with probably the, the most unity among all uh, human endeavors. Exactly. So they they come up with this plan to be because the, so they want to colonize Earth, but they can't like send big heavy spaceships fast enough to get to us. So instead, they create a supercomputer inside an extremely tiny particle that can be sent at at super fast speed toward mm-hmm. Earth. Like with the speed approaching that of a photon, right? That yeah. being the idea. Yeah, exactly. So it gets here ahead of when they could actually get here with all of their heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. And it gets to Earth first. And mainly what it goes about doing is trying to drive all of the world's leading scientists and particle physicists and everybody to despair and insanity. And it does this by making them doubt the existence of scientific laws. Yes. Like uh, trying to give them – so they do the same experiment twice and get different results. Mm-hmm. So it seems like the laws of science are either breaking down or clearly we didn't understand everything to begin with. And this, the, the, the ladder of science is no longer the sure way to ascend anywhere. 
another truly genius move that I think is there in the plot. And I can't – maybe this has been done in another science fiction work that uh, – because it's so obvious, I, I feel like somebody should have thought of this. But this is the first story I can think of really exploiting this plot to its fullest. And the idea is – the aliens figure out how to exploit existing ideological and political fractures within mm. humankind to work the human population against itself on their behalf. Isn't there a, isn't there a series of uh, – I remember seeing these in bookstores when I was a kid, but they're like um, uh, alternative timeline books where aliens showed up during World War II. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's happened. So they, I bet it's probably explored in, in that in those works for sure, and and uh, others as well. Well, I mean, so one of the things you often see it's it's a common point of 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 the plot in like Independence Day and mm -hmm. stuff like you know all these alien invasion movies is suddenly we all realize that we must set aside our petty differences and uh, and join together if we're going to face off against the aliens. And there is some of that in this in this. We should mention this is also the first book in a series. I haven't finished reading the other books yet, but I've started the second one. Okay. Um, and so there is eventually some solidarity and banding together in the face of the aliens. But one thing the aliens figure out they can do is that, you know, if there is a, if there is a frustrated faction that already hates part of humanity, you can play to their biases and play to their – and flatter them and get them on your side. <laughs> and this is something that actually even, you know, is commonly used in, in human – colonization, international relations and all that, exploiting factions within a target group in order to play them, play them against each other along their existing fractures. You don't have to make new fractures. They're already factions within any given group of people. Yeah, I'm instantly reminded of some examples from uh, from Soviet history, you know, how how you end up dividing up these territories. Make sure that you have a territory that has locked into it Two uh, rival groups, yeah. so that they're always fighting each other right. and not fighting the uh, uh, the occupying power. You know what? George Washington, the first president of the United ah. States, he had a lot of really lucid thoughts about this uh, in his farewell address in 1796. He was warning about the nature of political parties. He was essentially saying, like, don't get going with political parties because they will be the death of you as a nation. So Washington's talking about internal party factionalism, you know, fighting amongst each other. And he says, it serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms. It kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passions. Thus, the policy and the will of one country are subjected to the policy and will of another. And if you just replace planet there for country, mm -hmm. there you've got what happens uh, in the novel. I don't know if Lou was thinking about George Washington, but uh, <laughs> it's a perennial insight, I guess. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. Since we're having our spoiler-laden discussion here, one thing that I wanted to mention from the second novel in the series, the one that comes after The Three-Body Problem, uh, is this great moment that I, I haven't finished this novel yet, but there is a part where the particle that the aliens have sent ahead, the supercomputer uh, AI that they've sent ahead that's about the size of a particle and is flying around the Earth trying to prepare the Earth to be invaded – there is a great scene where it first learns that human beings, unlike the aliens who sent it, 
have the ability to lie. Ooh. Because the aliens are not – they're not individually deceptive because they don't communicate verbally. They essentially share thoughts with one another in a detectable way and thus to think something is to have that thing be perceptible by another member of your species. And so thus you can't misrepresent your thoughts. If you have a thought, someone can see it on you. And so they don't really have a concept of lying. And when the the supercomputer sent by the aliens as they're on their way to invade first becomes aware that human beings have the power to say something that is not what they really think, the supercomputer processes for a moment and then it says, I am afraid. <laughs> All right. So, so just to sum it up, um, humans versus aliens. Humans' um, advantages, uh, we have science. Yeah. Uh, disadvantages, um, we have— uh, We fight with each other We fight with each other and have political disunity. And then kind of a pro and a con, uh, there's the whole lying thing. Because yeah. we lie to each other all the time, which uh-huh. doesn't help our case. Uh, but then we can also lie to the aliens if we're on talking terms with them. So anyway, I highly recommend uh, Three-Body Problem if you're in the mood for some thought-provoking science fiction. All right. Well, there you have it. I feel like we've presented quite a grab bag here of uh, fiction, nonfiction, a little children's literature thrown in as well. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, I'll make sure that we have links to all of these books on the landing page for this episode at Stuff to Blow Your Mind because inevitably you're going to ask, well, how do you spell that author's last name? Mm -hmm. What was that book you mentioned? Maybe we didn't say the title clearly enough. We'll have it all listed here and then you can continue your research into which books might best uh, suit your palate. And the the other cool thing is that, uh, you know, this is just the beginning of a discussion, really, because inevitably, uh, many of you have read these books as well, or some of these books, and you have thoughts on them that you would like to share with us, or perhaps share with other listeners, uh, say, at our Facebook group uh, on uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. And then perhaps you have all new recommendations for us, books that, you, that you're that you thinking, well, if you like this, then you'll definitely like this. Yeah, please send them our way. Uh, obviously, we don't have time to read all of the books that you recommend to us, but a lot of times we do find out about books that we end up reading from listener recommendations. So, so by all means. Yes, send them in. In the meantime, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all of the podcast episodes. uh, And that, of course, includes uh, all of the previous summer reading episodes. Uh, You'll also find links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. And if you want to support the show, again, the best thing you can do is to rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to recommend books to us, to recommend a topic for the future, or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, maybe how you found out about the show, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.